This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am flattered they elevated me to having a JD, which is a law degree, but I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Today, a special sidebar edition of All Rise, a look behind the scenes. Five things you may not know about court, part one. Number one, did you know that for the most part, anyone at any time can enter any courtroom anywhere across the United States? Of course there are exceptions, but those exceptions are rare. You see, courtrooms are public venues. They belong to the people. So the next time you're in court and you want to see what's going on in a particular courtroom, you're free to enter and exit as you wish. It might be daunting when you open that courtroom door because most likely everyone will turn around and gawk at you out of curiosity. They want to see who's coming into the courtroom. Many times people just stand holding the courtroom door open like a deer stuck in headlights and then they bravely step in. Well, you might ask yourself, when would a hearing be closed to the public? Well, if a minor child testifies, then they will close the courtroom. On the civil side of the court, when they talk about what are referred to as trade secrets, which I think are very, very cool, they'll close the courtroom door to the public. For example, say there's a national pizza chain restaurant and they're in court for some reason and they're speaking about the recipe for their pizza sauce that goes onto their pizza. That would be considered a trade secret, and it would not be a venue that the public could listen to. Another example might be, say, Coca-Cola Corporation would be in the courtroom talking about how they make Coca-Cola. That would be considered a trade secret, and they would not have that courtroom open to the public. Now, I worked on one of these hearings about 20 years ago. They're called impounded hearings, impounded matters. And I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it was an athletic sporting goods company, and it's a household name in America. Well, they had a baseball glove they wanted to introduce, and they were in some legal entanglement regarding this baseball glove. Supposedly, this glove had superpowers, and it hadn't hit the market yet, so they conducted what was called a closed courtroom impounded proceeding. Now, other examples of why a courtroom would be closed, and this is a big one, would be any time the proceeding had anything to do with a grand jury matter. When the grand jury completes their business for the day, the district attorney who had been working in the grand jury that day and the foreperson of the grand jury will come into the courtroom and privately meet with the judge out of earshot of everyone else except for the judge and myself. Me being the court reporter, I have to take down everything that the foreperson and the DA say to the judge in private. So they will just say, Your Honor, there were X amount of grand jurors present today. I forget the quota, but in order to vote on if something's going to be a true bill or a no bill, they will have to have a certain quota for that day of grand jurors in the grand jury. So the DA will say something like, Your Honor, there were 21 grand jurors present today. We'd like to present 24 true bills and no no bills. And the judge will like, you know, put his his or her, you know, stamp of approval on it. 
And then the, the DA will say, and the grand jury will reconvene on X date. So then they'll leave the courtroom and it's very short. It takes about two minutes, but that happens a lot in court. And the judge will take those papers and they get processed. The true bills get processed and they turn into indictments. It's just part of the judicial process. Number two, oaths. Let's talk about oaths. You may wonder, what's an oath? What does taking an oath really mean? An oath is a solemn promise to tell the truth, and it sounds something like this. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give in the matter pending between the Commonwealth and the defendant at the bar will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Now just note, so help you God is contained in that oath. There was a movement at some point to remove that verbiage, the so help you God verbiage, but that movement failed. I have no opinion on this either way. I'm just merely pointing that out. Before a witness takes the witness stand to give testimony, the court officer will escort the witness up to the front of the courtroom where the witness will be instructed by the court officer to pause, face the courtroom clerk, and raise their right hand, whereby the clerk will administer an oath to the witness. And that oath will be just like what I have recited. Do you solemnly swear, blah, blah, blah. So interestingly, sometimes a witness will not swear to tell the truth. And you say to yourself, well, what does that mean? Maybe for religious reasons or otherwise, that witness may feel, hey, I tell the truth at all times. So in this case, I don't feel that I have to quote unquote, swear to tell the truth. So that witness will affirm that they will tell the truth. And the clerk will administer an oath, which sounds a little bit different. And it will go something like this. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give in the matter pending between the Commonwealth and the defendant at the bar will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I just thought that was a little interesting point to point out, that swear or affirm. Anyway, witnesses aren't the only people in a courtroom to be sworn in. Sometimes I, as the court reporter, if I'm not in superior court and I go to like land court, the judge will have to swear me in at the start of the trial. And then it gets even weirder because in land court, after that judge swears me in at the start of the trial, as I said, then throughout the remainder of the trial, I, as the court reporter, will swear in the witnesses in the courtroom, not the courtroom clerk. So in land court, the administering of oath to the witnesses falls on me, the court reporter. Now, the first time I was called upon to swear a witness in, in land court, I was caught off guard, as I had never been called to do so. And anyway, it took me a few minutes to get myself together and get my bearings, and the judge got kind of perturbed at me. I was unprepared that I would be the one to swear in the witness. I had heard that it happened, but it just, I just wasn't on my radar. But anyway, that's just a small aside. Also in court, court interpreters are also administered an oath at the start of each workday by the courtroom clerk. Court interpreters do just what it sounds like. They interpret court proceedings. They are stating when they take this oath that they will well and truly interpret the proceedings to the best of their abilities. Court interpreters work hard. There's oftentimes such a demand for their services that we will have to halt a proceeding and sit in place and wait for the interpreter to finish up work in another courtroom, and then they come in our courtroom and join us for our proceeding. The three most common languages that interpreters are used for, in my experience, are hands down Spanish. They always need a Spanish interpreter somewhere in the courthouse every day. 
And then you'll see a lot of need for French Creole and Mandarin. So those three languages, Spanish, French Creole, and Mandarin are in high demand. We get all kinds of languages that are in need of the services of court interpreters, and interpreters step up and they do a great job. From a court reporter point of view, testimony given by way of an interpreter to me is a breath of fresh air because it's very easy to take down testimony when there's an interpreter. In other words, you get a break in between each question and answer. It's not so fast-paced, so it's really a breath of fresh air for me. When there's an interpreter in court, the microphone on the witness stand somehow ends up getting pointed towards the witness, and you see that isn't helpful because that witness is non-English speaking. A lot of times, I'll take my hand and discreetly move the gooseneck mic toward the interpreter's mouth because that's who everybody needs to hear, the interpreter. The interpreter's voice needs to be amplified, not the witness. Number three of things you may not know about court, murder trials involving rival gangs. When there's a murder trial going on involving gang members, friends and family of the decedent end up showing up in mass. During these trials, the courtrooms get packed with spectators. Family and friends oftentimes will have t-shirts made up that have a picture of the victim on the front of the t-shirt. Sometimes they wear buttons on their jackets that display the face of the person who was killed. So in the courtroom during murder trials, when spectators are watching the proceedings from the back of the courtroom, when they're wearing t-shirts and buttons that have the face of the person that's been murdered, to me, it's just giving a tribute and a remembrance to the person that was killed. And it's a delicate balance as far as I can see, because the judge has to make a decision. They have freedom of expression to wear them, although if the jury sees a lot of that, it could tilt them and they could become prejudiced. So it's a delicate balance in the courtroom as far as these items that spectators will wear. Um, Some murder trials involving gangs have the capacity to be volatile. So in an abundance of caution, a judge might have a court officer stationed with a table, sitting at a table outside the courtroom door. And that court officer's job is to require all persons entering the courtroom to show an identification, and he or she will keep a log of everyone who goes into that courtroom to watch the trial. So in other words, you must show a valid ID before entering the courtroom. While murder trials involving gangs are common, the exercise of the court officer stationed outside the courtroom door is rare, but unfortunately it happens. Sometimes it's necessary. Number four, bunting on defense tables. The defense table is the table in the middle of the courtroom where the defendant and the defendant's lawyer sit during the trial. If you've been in a courtroom, you may have seen this bunting that runs around the perimeter of the defense table. It's not there to look pretty. It's not a decoration. It serves a purpose. And if you're not familiar with what bunting is, to me, it reminds me of a flag. It's a heavy piece of material that has folds in it. You'll see it a lot on the 4th of July holiday around the United States when it's red, white, and blue in color. I think it's very pretty. Oftentimes, it's hung from porches. Well, you may wonder why this blue bunting goes around the three sides of the defense table. This is an effort to disguise, so to speak, the defendant's shackled feet from the members of the jury because it would be prejudicial for the defendant to be viewed in this way. Some courtrooms have heavy round anchors that are attached to the ground underneath the defense table where a defendant sits. 
It's rare, but sometimes it's necessary, unfortunately, because once in a great while, it does become necessary to shackle a defendant's foot to that anchor that's embedded into the floor, so the defendant won't be able to get up, jump, maybe flee, or hurt somebody. So in problematic cases, they'll employ this procedure. Number five, courtroom etiquette. Despite what you see on television and in the movies, lawyers do not have free reign to walk all around the courtroom whenever they feel like it. In these movies and on TV, you might see two lawyers sauntering up to the judge's bench, standing close to the judge, and that would never happen. In court, before you make a move, you need to ask the court, may I approach your honor? Or sometimes they'll say, your honor, may I step forward? You must be granted permission to approach, or you have to get invited to step forward by the courtroom clerk or by the judge. There's none of that just waltzing around the courtroom. It just doesn't happen in real life. A lawyer must have a legitimate reason to approach a witness. You can't just walk up to a witness. You can't question them up close unless you have a darn good reason. So all day long in trials, you'll hear, Your Honor, may I approach the witness? Your Honor, may I approach the witness? If the judge grants permission, after that lawyer completes the reason why he actually went up to the witness, that lawyer has to immediately leave the area of the witness box and return back to the back of the courtroom and resume questioning the witness from the podium, which is at the far end of the jury box. Now, you might say to yourself, when would a lawyer want to approach a witness? Well, some examples of why a lawyer might ask to approach a witness would be the lawyer might have a map, and he might say, Mr. Witness, would you place an X on the map where you were standing when the crime occurred? On another occasion, the witness might be presented with a series of photographs and be asked to identify items or places in the photographs. Another common reason why a lawyer might approach a witness would be to try and impeach that witness. It's an effort to undermine the witness's testimony on the stand with prior testimony taken at an earlier time before the trial. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it goes something like this. A lawyer might have a deposition in his hands. A deposition looks just like a book report you did back in high school, and it has sworn testimony typed on it in question and answer form. So the lawyer might go up to the witness, open a page of that deposition, and say, well, didn't you say on this date, blah, 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 and that doesn't square with what you're saying here today. So that is what is referred to as impeaching a witness with the witness's prior testimony. And let me just say, there's nothing unusual about an attorney who attempts to impeach a witness with prior testimony. Attempts to impeach a witness during a trial is extremely common and is just part of the judicial process. When you see a lawyer on TV or in a movie addressing a jury that's sitting in a jury box, oftentimes that lawyer will be touching the jury box and kind of hanging over it. That is a huge no-no. In reality, you would never see a lawyer touching a jury box. And in the event, they, I've seen it like twice in 30 years, and both times they've been called out on it in open court immediately by the judge. I thought this was very interesting. It just doesn't happen in real life. Now, we've all heard of lawyers, quote unquote, passing the bar. And actually, there is a real bar in every courtroom. If you ever notice that square area, it looks like a corral where the plaintiff and defendant's table is, that's the bar area. So you're not really allowed to step in there until you pass the bar. 
And the bar is like a wooden fence that you walk by. And unless you're being tried for a crime or you've passed the bar, you can't enter that sacred part of the courtroom. Sometimes the entrance to the bar area in a courtroom will have like one of those swinging half doors, which always remind me of saloon doors that you see in, a, in an old Western. Now, for those of you that don't know what a Western is, it's a popular genre of movies where you'd see cowboys riding horses in what was referred to as the Old West, the Western part of the United States. The saloons where cowboys would gather and drink alcohol had that half-swinging door to enter the saloon. Those half-swinging doors are still in a lot of the courtrooms. So while we're on the subject, I too, as a court reporter, must follow rules. I'm not allowed to be anywhere near the judge's bench. Although I sit right underneath it, it's not proper for me to ever touch that bench or to go up on the bench. Now, in certain circumstances, it's legit, and I can go up there. The few times that I have stepped up on the judge's bench, I have to admit, it felt very, very cool. It instantaneously swelled my head. And when I got up there, I got like this sense of power. It's like this powerful force embraces you. There are certain times when I've had to go up there to disconnect something that's been plugged in underneath the bench or something has fallen underneath the bench and I have to get up there and crawl down on my hands and knees for a certain reason. And at those times I've glanced at where the judge sits and I've noticed some like insight into who they are. You know, I've seen like hand grips, you know, one would squeeze to increase hand strength. So this one judge must have been doing hand exercises with these little devices as he sat on the bench. I remember one judge had a rock that would sit in front of her and the word patience was painted on the rock. I could tell which judges have OCD. You know, everything would be lined up as neat as a pen. There'd be four red pens, four blue pens, four black ink pens, different size post-it notes, two staplers. Well, you could just tell they must have a really neat home. And then like the judges' benches that were messy, that might give insight to who has a messy house. And you know what? At the end of the day, who cares? Doesn't make them a bad person. Just saying. So there you have it. Five things you may not have known about court. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed. Case dismissed.